This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome to our new episode of Taiwan Bound. I'm Ido Aroni, your host, and I'm really pleased to host today in the studio a long-standing acquaintance of mine, Professor Dr. Yael Sternhell from the Department of History, whose specialty is American studies. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to, uh, to see you again and to spend some time with you and, and learn, first of all, about your own life experience, about your academic work, and of course, about your department and, and, and where you'd like to, um, to take the department in the future. So why don't we start with yourself? Tell us a little bit. I know you were born into an academic family. Yeah. Both parents. I mean, I, you know, my personal history is pretty uh, straightforward um, in the sense that I come from an academic family. I was sort of raised into it. It's always been very natural for me to imagine myself as uh, becoming an academic. But uh, I want to say that one other thing that I um, got uh, from my parents growing up is, is a real um, love for history and for the humanities and uh, a fervent belief that In the power of reading and writing to change the world and so uh, it's it's not just a um, something that I always imagined myself doing I, I really do have a passion uh, for history and for the humanities that has always uh, really burned in me and I was ever so fortunate to be able to make a career out of it and your career started where? So I, um, I, I did my undergraduate degree at the Hebrew University uh, of Jerusalem and uh, then uh, went on to get my MA and PhD at Princeton, where I had the great fortune of uh, working with truly great minds, um, James McPherson, the renowned Civil War historian, and uh, Daniel Rogers, um, the renowned uh, cultural historian. And um, the reason why I chose um, this uh, particular field, why I wanted to specialize in U.S. history and specifically in the history of the long Civil War era, um, partly derives from the fact that I spent some time in the U.S. as a child when my father was on sabbatical and was just indoctrinated into the American mindset. I'm, I'm a real success story of uh, Black History Month, uh, where I sort of first fell in love um, with this history and uh, found it just so that it, it, it spoke so um, clearly and deeply to me. Um, no how, how many years did you spend as a child in not many I spent uh, second grade and then uh, part of 10th grade so it wasn't uh, in terms of years uh, it, it doesn't add up to that much but these were very formative periods in my life we all have these times in our childhood that change us that make us who we are and for me it was clearly the time that I spent in the United States as a child and In other ways, though, the, the reason that I ended up um, studying um, Southern history, Civil War history, I think uh, goes even deeper and, and has to do with the fact that in some ways, for me, it's a way to process um, my own family's history in World War II. 
but in a setting um, that is less personal and uh, in which I feel more um, perhaps secure emotionally, um, I don't have to work on uh, the disasters and traumas of my own people, um, and I and I work on the disasters and traumas of. Uh, uh, other peoples, uh, both uh, white Americans and black Americans. And in some way, that that is, I think, at the end of the day, the real reason why I ended up being a scholar of the American Civil War and its aftermath uh, more now, than anything else. For the benefit of our listeners and viewers that are not familiar with your own personal family history in Europe, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, my father was born in 1935 in Poland and um, lost his father very early on in the war um, and then uh, entered uh, his town's uh, ghetto with his mother and his sister uh, who were taken to Auschwitz. Uh, well, he, he had the extraordinary um, good fortune of uh, being placed with his aunt and uncle who were able to take him out of the ghetto because his uncle had a work permit um, outside of the ghetto and he received help from non-Jews and uh, they were able to make it through the war in a city that is now, that has been in the news in recent years, uh, Lviv, um, where they uh, converted to Catholicism, uh, lived as Catholics and got through. And um, in 1947, after it became clear that Poland was very unhospitable to Jews, even in the aftermath of the war, uh, my father left for France, where he spent four years with uh, a different aunt who had moved there uh, in the 1920s and took him in. And he spent four years there. Um, in school, making up for the lost years of the war where he could not go to school. And then when he was 16, um, migrated to Israel alone uh, as part of a, a youth migration movement. And as a survivor, what, what made him so so unique, uh, your father, the late Professor Zev Sternhel, is the, the fact that he was such a staunch supporter and a, such a significant voice uh, you know, supporting humanism and tolerance. Right. So so my father then went on to spend uh, the rest of his life uh, doing two things other than being an extraordinary father. Um, one is uh, to be a scholar of fascism. And he, he basically spent the rest of his life trying to understand what happened and what were the f deep cultural forces that made his world fall apart when he was four years old. But then the other thing um, that he spent decades doing um, was was trying to make Israel the kind of country uh, that he could be proud of, a country that respects civil and human rights, a country that treats everyone as equals, a country that uh, learned and uh, internalized the lesson of Europe's great catastrophe. Um, and he fought um, without, uh, without fear, uh, without hesitation uh, against uh, Israel's control of the territories occupied in 1967. He fought for um, social justice within Israel. He was deeply committed to a set of causes that all of them basically came down to one fact, that we are all human beings and we all deserve 
to be free and happy, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, um, in the words of Thomas Jefferson. And uh, he died three years ago at the age of 85, um, having really left a legacy, of course, both in my own life, but but I think for Israel more generally uh, in terms of what it means to be an engaged intellectual and uh, what intellectuals uh, can do in society, what they owe to society. Uh, lessons that I think resonate really powerfully, uh, maybe especially these days. So these are the, the the foundations, your family foundations, also your intellectual foundation. Yeah, in some that ways that's true. Led you to the study of, of right. what happens in what happened in the United States. So tell us first about your PhD. I'm, I'm curious to know about that. Right. So my PhD dissertation, you know, it's uh, I I started working on it when I was 28, which in hindsight seems very young, though I didn't feel young back then. But um, my my dissertation was about um, the experience of spatial mobility in the Civil War. I basically made the argument that the most salient experience of living through the Civil War in the South, where the war was actually taking place, was not death or violence, but was movement of refugees, of runaway slaves, of soldiers. Um, and I, I made a, a series of arguments about how the history of war is shaped by mobility, both in terms of how people experience it, but also in terms of how mobility shapes the the just the contours of the war, how the war uh, moves forward, uh, so to speak, uh, was through the movement of um, of human beings. Now, when you say mobility, if you can elaborate, what does it mean for the for our viewers? So basically, we tend to think about war as happening either on the battlefield or on the home front. But the Civil War, as I argued in the dissertation that became a book, took place very much on the roads and the fields that connected the battlefield and the home front. Uh, whether it is slave emancipation, which happened in movement, uh, the, the way that slavery broke down in the United States was not through an armed revolt, but through the movement of hundreds of thousands of enslaved men and women who took the opportunity of uh, the Union invasion into the South um, to flee their places of bondage, um, joined the Union Army, and had a tremendous impact on destabilizing the South, denying Southern slaveholders their labor, and encouraging the United States government to commit to slave emancipation. Um, I also uh, made an argument that the ways in which civilians who did stay at home experienced the war was through the movements of soldiers going back and forth, uh, stopping at their homes. Uh, but even when they were not stopping at their homes, the way that women read movement uh, fundamentally shaped how they saw the war. Were the, did the soldiers move quickly or so, slowly? Did they have shoes or not? Were they retreating um, in disgrace or were they marching into battle uh, like heroes in the making? Uh, so the, the, the mental, the psychological experience of the cause of the, the, the desire to see the South winning was often translated into watching soldiers move and trying to make sense of it. Um, I've also written about uh, refugees, and we normally don't think about the Civil War as a refugee crisis, but but it was. Um, 
both white refugees and then African-Americans who, after having left um, enslavement, basically settled in refugee camps that were attached to the camp, to the military camps of the U.S. Army and suffered there from um, all the the difficulties and, and the miseries of refugees, refugee camps as, you know, we had known them um, ever since. And so in, in that sense, the, the civil war is a refugee crisis. And this is something that other scholars have really um, developed in uh, the last few years. Um, and, and we now really see it differently. Um, we don't see the war as something that takes place um, on particular in, in particular battlefields, but we see it as this all-encompassing crisis in which people are constantly on the move and their movements destabilize the social order and eventually determine how the war is, um, is, is won and lost. So the war is still impacting the, the implications of the war. The ramifications are still impacting American society. Until Absolutely. I mean, in some ways, the United States is still debating the, the fundamental questions that were at the heart of the Civil War. Who owns America or whom does America belong to? Uh, is everyone who is in America and makes a claim on American citizenship deserve to be a citizen? Um, is America a white man's country or does America belong to people of different colors, ethnicities and backgrounds? Um, in some ways, the debate about immigration is not that different in my mind than the debate about slavery. Uh, because it's a debate about who gets to be treated as a full-fledged human being and who can be tolerated as long as they're doing the labor that other Americans need from them. And, and full access to opportunity, which is the big issue. Exactly, and access to opportunity. I think that's absolutely true. The, the question of what is equality? Um, are everyone, is everyone in America truly equal? And what does equality mean? Is a question that is still, elections are still won and lost uh, about this question. I mean, I think you can't understand the rise of Donald Trump in 2016 um, unless you see it in the context of a debate about what is the future of America? What kind of country will America be? Will it be a country that um, maintains particular privileges um, for white people? Or will it be a country that will be truly inclusive and accept those who are already inside it uh, and those who want to come in. Now, we live in the age of information overload, which obviously contributes to polarization, flattens the conversation, lack of Absolutely. nuance. So what do, you th what do you think America is going based on what you learned about the Civil War? Look, I mean, I think, and, and this is not just my sense of it, but I think many uh, of my people uh, colleagues and, and peers who study uh, the Civil War era feel that uh, America has not been this divided since the Civil War. And in some ways, the last few years have really felt like the 1850s, meaning a country in which two populations simply do not see the world in the same way and cannot even agree on the basics anymore. And the sense that the country is basically splitting into two states where abortion is legal versus states where abortion is illegal, states that are addressing the climate crisis, whereas states that are not. Um, 
that that's in some ways that's a, a sort of a, a gradually dividing America that is not fighting a war. Uh, it is all mostly done um, nonviolently, though you could definitely argue that the January 6th insurrection um, was a form of violence that could absolutely seen as uh, harboring or um portending a civil war that that uh, that could break out. But to go back to your point about mobility, which I find I'm, I'm very curious to hear what you think about that phenomenon. So I understand the, the, the distinction between red states and blue states. However, it's very interesting that in some of the classic red states, let's say Texas or Georgia, uh, you see all the major urban centers are actually Absolutely. blue. Absolutely. Um, in Texas, the mayors in the larger cities have been Democrats for, for, for many for years. For a while, right, right, right. Now, I think it's, listen, it's much more complex than it was uh, 160 years ago. And even then, by the way, it was quite complex. Even then, there were regions within the South where slavery was not a major force, which uh, regions where uh, much of the population uh, objected to secession and wanted to stay part of the United States and resolve the questions uh, politically rather than militarily. So it, it wasn't that simple even back then, but it's definitely much more complicated now. And the urban rural split in America is as salient um, and and often volatile as the split as the split between uh, red and blue states. I think that's that's absolutely correct. Um, but but you know I think it's the last year or two have been a little calmer. But if we go back to uh, how things felt in 2019 or 2020, um, there was a real sense that America. Um, that, that, you know, armed militias, considering the fact that there are hundreds of millions of guns um, held freely by uh, Americans, uh, that, that we could quite easily imagine armed militias uh, starting to fight each other on the streets of the United States. And again, in some ways, the January 6th insurrection was a moment uh, of, of that sort, which was, no. which ended quickly, but was... Uh, transformative in many ways because it 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 really uh, brought into sharp relief the possibility that violence, that political violence, could break out on a mass scale in the contemporary United States. Now, based on your knowledge and your experience, is there any hope for the American political center to be reinvigorated yeah. anytime soon? I mean, you know, that's that's a good question. Um, look, I. This is an age, I think the, the, this question is part of a larger question of, of can democracy withstand the onslaught of social media and the information overload and the, the changes in how we consume information and how we consume with our fellow citizens. And I don't know what the answer to that, and I wish I felt the answer was yes, absolutely, but but I'm not so sure. Um, I think human society is changing with technology, and democracy is uniquely vulnerable to the new ways in which human beings consume information and and shape their understanding of the world. And so, as long as Americans can no longer even agree on facts. And as long as Americans have sort of retreated into really speaking only with 
the people with whom they agree. And I'm not, you know, I'm not judging. I do pretty much the same in Israel, to be honest. Um, then, then, uh, I, I don't quite see how the, the center of the 20th century can, uh, be, be reborn or reinvigorated, as you said, um, I think this is, we still don't know where this is going and whether we need to take proactive states as societies, as countries to to recreate other modes of communication, which will allow people who share the same country and have a, a mutual obligation towards one another, um, communicate and, uh, and, and uh, hate each other less, honestly. Well, there's an argument that the Constitution, which was written many, many years ago, was written in a different world, the technology was different, everything was different, and it is very much like in the case of other, uh, you know, democracies, um, it's an inadequate document. You talked to, you just mentioned the Second Amendment. Um, the Second Amendment was introduced when it was a different America, and the yeah. needs were different. Do you think there's um, there's any chance of of, of 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 the American political system to to have enough energy and power to adapt and adjust the Constitution to modern days? Um, sadly, I just don't see it, and I agree uh, absolutely that the U.S. Constitution no longer works. Um, sadly, that both the Electoral College and the Senate and the process of selecting judges. All of these um, processes, um, all of these institutions um, make no sense. In some ways, they never made any sense. And when the Constitution was written in 1787, it was written by a group of 55 men, uh, not all of who, by the way, uh, agreed to the system as it was uh, ultimately uh, conceived, but the majority of them did. And they had a, a vested interest in a particular type of government, and they had their own agendas, and they created a system that was in some ways intentionally undemocratic and allowed power to be held by particular centers or by particular actors within American society. And so we, we have a set of uh, really crucial American institutions which um, are difficult to sustain, um, have always been difficult to sustain. But, but I think that the, the fact that elections are um, now becoming such uh, fraught events in terms of the possibility that the Electoral College uh, will simply not reflect uh, the, the popular vote, you know, that's, that's a real problem in a democracy. That's a real problem. Um, and, and so I, you know, I think there are... Uh, urgent repairs that need to be made to the Constitution. But but in order to repair the Constitution, in order to amend it, you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress and the agreement of three-fourths of the states. And I, as an outsider observing the United States, just cannot see this, just can't imagine a scenario in which three-fourths of the states will agree to fundamentally alter uh, the American system of governance because too many states and too many populations benefit from the system as it now exists. And so in that way, I mean, you know, I have great faith in American civil society. 
um, I think that we, we can't um, disregard the fact that America as a democracy has been um, solid and stable uh, f- since the first election in 1788-89. And that's a huge accomplishment, which no other country can boast of. And I think that matters, that uh, tradition and culture and a sense that democracy is who we are, that really does matter. But the way that the United States uh, is organized politically is A, far from ideal and honestly just completely out of step with contemporary politics in an age of mass politics, of polarization, of the information revolution. Now, before we move to uh, your, you know, your current research, uh, let's have a word about the Obama presidency because mm. um, I'm assuming that um, that it has a very special and significant place in your vision of what happened. Yeah. No, I mean, like, you know, many people, Obama's election was one of the highlights of my life as a political being. Um, and I, I, you know, I was genuinely personally moved by it. But to be honest, and I'm actually on record uh on the morning after his election in Haaretz, in Israel's um, uh, leading uh, daily, uh, saying that I don't know what this is all going to translate into in terms of African-American rights. And that there is even a way in which the election of a black president could uh, ostensibly show that African-Americans have made it. And remember the, the lingo of the post-racial America. And that could be really harmful, um, really harmful, because African-Americans are still really struggling um, economically. And the gaps between black households and white households have not um, closed uh, one inch in the past 50 years. Um, I think the current rate is a black household has uh, 13% of uh, the assets of a white household. And the election of a black president doesn't really change that, to be honest. And the fact that uh, Barack and Michelle Obama are just an astounding success story uh, that that is a great role model, and I think it does matter for you know African American kids who grew up during the Obama presidency. That that it does matter. It does create this mental image of what a black man and what a black woman um, can be in America. But at the end of the day, if the same kids are still going to failing schools in neighborhoods that were intentionally um, planned by white urban planners uh, to be marginal and isolated. Uh, if they don't have opportunity as children to really uh, evolve into everything that they can be, then, you know, the fact that Barack Obama was president is is a happy fact, but it doesn't really make that much of a difference. And I think the last few years have sort of proven that that is actually the case, um, that in, in terms of the, the by all uh, measures. Uh, there hasn't been a tangible change for the better in um, the state of the African-American community at large. Now, before we started the podcast, we both talked about the, the importance of humanities in any academic institutions. You know, I, I myself graduated from the Faculty of Arts and Social Studies and your history. And I feel that, uh, you know, we're being attacked. There's, a, there's an onslaught on, on humanities. And, um, and, and tell us 
Why do you think it's so important? Look, I mean, I, I share your sense of an onslaught, and um, it, it's almost um, unfathomable to me that in, in the current state of the world, we need to justify why studying history is important. The world is undergoing vast transformations, whether it's the information revolution, whether it's the climate crisis, whether it's the democratic crisis. You can't expect people graduating out of university to, to find themselves in this world unless they have some understanding of how the world works. You can't understand the reality that you live in unless you understand categories of gender, race, and class. You can't understand your own reality if you don't have any sense of how power works in society. And that is the kind of education that only scholars in the humanities and the social sciences and, and the arts can, can provide. Um, what we are going to end up with is computer scientists who have no sense of what it means to be human and who think only in terms of very uh, particular results to their research, who will create um, algorithms and uh, AI technologies that, that could become honestly monstrous. And I think it is in some ways more important than ever that the humanities be given the place that they deserve in order to educate people who will be able to deal with these vast transformations in uh, the, the, the life that, that we're, you know, all experiencing. I mean, we are, the world is about to experience massive migration related to the climate crisis. We need to understand what it means to be a refugee. We need to understand how past refugee crises have been dealt with, how they have been resolved. We, we need to learn from the mistakes of the past in order not to end up, you know, and I don't want to sound very too apocalyptic, but with another Auschwitz and Hiroshima, because the, the processes of change that the world is undergoing are parallel to the, the same processes that it went through in the late 19th and early 20th century. And um, we, we need to reinvent democracy. How do you reinvent democracy in the age of, of the information revolution if your citizens don't know anything about the history of democracy? If they, if they haven't taken one class in philosophy, in political philosophy, and, and, and they don't understand even what the system means, right? If the, if the only thing that they consume are slogans that they're, fade, that they're fed on Facebook and Twitter, and so I think considering what a fragile and precarious and dangerous moment this is for the world, it is absolutely clear to me that we should all be invested in making sure that young people have the, the mental and intellectual equipment they need to deal with a world that honestly is not going to be an easy world to live in. Well, I, 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 we know we could talk about this for hours, but I'd like to end our podcast with this really call to action, basically. What you just said is a, is a call to action to our friends out there, our listeners and our viewers, to understand how important it is to support a history, study of history and the study of humanities and social studies. And I would like to thank you for that. Our time is up, unfortunately, but um, I'd like to, uh, um, to invite you again very soon to continue to this Thank conversation. You. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Ido. Thank you. This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. 
Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Thank you.